let you folks know something. Uh, when Casey uh, graduated from college, she went to live with my sister for a year out in Missoula, Montana. And there was a young pastor named Scotty starting church out there. And Casey was a part of that church, and she was really, really excited about it. So we heard a lot about it. And uh, since then, Barb and I have been out there to hear Scotty preach once. But I do download his sermons once in a while. Um, it's a really great church, Zootown Church. And I, I was listening to a sermon several months ago. And uh, it was a really good message. And at the end, he said, stay tuned. Uh, I have a little interview I want to uh, uh, play for you at the end of the, uh, the podcast of the sermon. And uh, it, was a, it was a great story. Uh, he had a gal in. Um, her name was Amy Johnson. I don't know where she was from, but she worked in, a, in an abortion clinic uh, for a number of years. And eventually uh, came out of the abortion industry to lead a pro-life movement in a certain area. So it was, it's a story of, of her uh, leaving the abortion industry and, uh, and leading the pro-life march. And I thought, wow, that, that, is, that was a really great story. And I didn't realize it at all, but I just found out two weeks ago that her story is the root of a movie that's coming out uh, this weekend. Actually, it's opening in, I think, Savoy on Thursday, but it'll be in, I hope, other theaters this weekend and following. The movie is called Unplanned, and um, it's uh, the story of Amy Johnson. Um, I don't know any more about it, but I heard the interview with her, and it's her story, and it's about the abortion industry. So I just want to make you all aware of that. I was fascinated by her story in a 20-minute interview on the radio. Uh, I'm assuming that the movie is also going to be pretty good. But Unplanned is the movie. It's her story about her uh, uh, work in the abortion industry and then onto the pro-life movement. And I think it's going to be a really, really good movie. So I just encourage you all to at least take a look at that uh, and maybe go see the movie. It is R-rated, just so you know that. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Dan. Hey, good morning, folks. Could do better. Good morning. Hey, glad you're all here. Hey, grab your Bibles and uh, let's turn uh, to two New Testament books as we continue to work our way through our sermon series in the New Covenant this morning, looking at the uh, first of uh, three provisions of the New Covenant, our new purity. We'll begin in Colossians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn there, Colossians chapter 2. And then if you want to put your finger in Romans chapter 4, uh, just a few uh, books to your left. Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4 as we uh, take an initial look at uh, the new purity provided and uh, the new purity procured. And the next week we'll look at the new purity in practice. So uh, trust that you're there or close to it. Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4 and that's pretty hot. I'm not talking about me. Okay. Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4. And then we'll pray and then we'll dive right in. So uh, would you pray with me, please? Father, we ask that you would be with us and that your spirit would be among us, moving and teaching us, instructing us, sanctifying us, and saving us if we don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would be well-pleased by uh, the time that we have this morning. We are so grateful that you have provided uh, every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. And that this blessing of the forgiveness of sins, the uh, new purity that you have provided for us, the robes of righteousness that you have credited to our account if we are in Christ, 
What a blessing. And we ask that you would transform us according to your will and by your word for your glory and our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people together said. Amen. Well, in the forests of uh, northern Europe and uh, Asia lives this little animal called the ermine. Uh, cute, I know, all everybody together, right? Of course, he's known for his snow-white fur in the winter. Now, he does something rather interesting. He instinctively protects this beautiful white coat of fur against anything that would soil it. And uh, sadly, the hunters, well, they take advantage of that. See, what they do to capture them is they first find out where they live. They find out their home, and they smear dirt and grime at the entrance of the home and in the home itself. And then they use their dogs, and they sort of allow the dogs to chase the ermine back to the home. Now, when the ermine finds its home all all, all dirty and all soiled, well, it has a choice to make. It can preserve its purity, if you will, the the beauty of its coat, or it can uh, save its life and be all dirty. And uh, the ermine actually often opts to lose his life for the sake of preserving his purity. What is astounding to me, friends, is that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, cared so much about our purity that he, like the ermine, gave his own life, not in order to secure his own purity, but, friends, to provide and secure our purity for those of us who are in Christ. This morning, we're going to focus our efforts on the very first of three key New Covenant provisions identified from Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36, what we have been calling our new purity. In those two passages, we see that God promises, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And then Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities And from all of your idols. And friends, these two foundational promises of our new purity we see are fleshed out in much greater detail as we work our way into the New Testament. And so we'll be looking at two key passages on our new purity, Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4. First first of all, I want us to see um, how this new purity is provided. How this new purity is provided to us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And then secondly, we will see how we procure this new purity in Romans chapter 4. So the new purity provided and the new purity procured. Let's begin in Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to focus our efforts on two little verses, verses 13 and 14. But before we do that, I just want to set the stage if I might. Paul is writing in this book to a church there in Colossae that is, that is plagued with heresy. It is plagued with false teachers and Paul writes to them. He is combating this unknown heresy. We get an idea uh, as you read throughout the book exactly what it is that he is fighting. Most of us think that it is a mixture of, of Judaism or the Old Testament law mixed with something called Gnosticism. Now as you read through the letter, you'll find out that these false teachers, they were emphasizing the idea of being enlightened or higher knowledge or spiritual fullness. We see that this heresy involved uh, the following of Jewish rituals. It involved the self-denial of the body, which is called asceticism, and it certainly 
in fact, maybe most emphatically, had a, a, an unorthodox view of who Jesus was. And so what we see in, in the book of Colossians throughout is that he warns them uh, about this heresy, and then he fights this heresy by emphasizing the divinity of Jesus Christ, an orthodox view of Jesus. Now, if you were to read chapter 2 today, and I encourage you to do that, if you were to read Colossians chapter 2, you would see that, that three times in this chapter alone, that Paul specifically uh, refutes this heresy in verse 4 and in verse 8, and then a longer section in verses 16 through 23. He, com- he, he warns them about it, and then he combats it by pointing to the full deity of Jesus Christ. We see that clearly in verse 9. But, but what is interesting to me is not only does he point them towards the full deity of Jesus Christ, but in verse 11, he begins to point them and us towards the fullness, the spiritual richness, blessings, if you will, that the believer has in Jesus Christ. Essentially, in verses 11 through 15, he talks about the fullness of the Christian in Jesus Christ. Take, for instance, in verse 11, if you have your Bibles open. In verse 11, he, he says that, that our slavery to sin has been well removed, has been circumcised. In verse 12, he says we are united with Christ. We are raised to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, starting in verse 13, we come to the verses we'll be focusing in on. In verses 13 and 14, he continues to spell out this fullness that we have in Jesus Christ by describing for us the forgiveness of sins, which is ours, in Christ. So let's read the text together, and then we'll work our way through it, starting in verse 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross." Friends, the first thing I want us to see in verse 13 is this. He mentions, he emphasizes at the front end our need for this new, new purity. That is the state in which uh, we were in before we became Christians. Notice how Paul begins again in verse 13. He says, when you were what, church? When you were what? Dead. When you were Dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Here he describes the state of everyone from the moment of birth to the moment of rebirth. And what is that state? He describes it as a state of spiritual death. Friends, this state, this dead state, is one of separation from God, both now and forever. It is a state in which we are devoid of any ability on our own to respond to God or rescue the situation that we find ourselves in. When you were dead. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a Christian, there was a time when you were dead. And friends, if you're not a Christian, you are dead. We are in a state of Deadness. I've heard the story told of uh, the former pastor up at Moody Church in Chicago, Erwin Lutzer. And the story is told that he would take a, a group of his guys that he was training to, to be preachers and, and teachers, and he would take them to a rather unusual place to give their sermon for the class. He would actually take them to the local cemetery. 
And he would take them to the cemetery and he gave them these instructions. He said, men, each of you find a headstone. And so each of them would find a headstone. And he would then proceed to have them preach their sermon to that headstone. Now that had to be pretty unusual. I don't know how I would feel about that. But he did it to make a point. He wanted to remind them that when you preach to those who are spiritually dead, to unbelievers, that they are unable to respond without divine grace, without divine intervention. And friends, it's significant. Paul begins here when he talks about the riches of the forgiveness of our sins. He has to begin here. Because it's then and only then, when we've gotten a a clear glimpse of the holiness of God, when we have gotten a clear glimpse of our dead state and our infinite guilt before him, will only then will the forgiveness and the, and the purity that is being offered to us, only then will it be will the most pressing need in our lives. Well, Paul continues. He says, while you were once in a spiritual coffin, what happened? Did God leave us in that state? No, he did not, right? He didn't leave us there. He continues, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, what does he say next? God made you alive. God made you alive with Christ. Here Paul tells us that God is the one who initiates salvation. That God is the one who initiates the forgiveness of sins. He is the one who enables salvation. Because friends, spiritually dead people can't resurrect themselves. Right? We need God to do that which we cannot do. And in conjunction with this, not only does he bring the dead back to life, but he continues. He says, he also forgave us all of our sins. Friends, this is not just sins in the past, but sins in the present, sins in the future. He doesn't say some sins or most of our sins, but what does he say? He forgives us of all of our sins. There was a great story told about the, the German reformer, Martin Luther. It's, it's probably like a fable. I don't think it actually really happened, but it's, maybe it originated from him. It, it is told about him. And, and so the fable goes like this. Uh, it was one late one night when the devil approached Martin Luther, and he had a, a long list in his hands, and he proceeded to, to show Martin Luther this this list in which he was accusing Luther of of sins that he had committed. See, Martin, this is what you did then, and and this is what you did here, and this is what you said that day, and and, and so on and so forth. And so the the devil came to accuse Martin Luther. And the fable continues that Luther said, oh, you're absolutely right, but you got something wrong. And the devil said, what is that? And he said, we actually missed some sins. And so he actually began to add to the list. Well, the other day, I I said this, and and I acted that way. And he added to the list. And when when the list was finally complete, he then told Satan, now write this at the bottom of the list. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. And as the fable goes, the devil fled from his presence. Friends, let me just pause a moment here and ask a significant question. We have seen what Christ can do for those who are lost. He can bring the dead to life. He can forgive us all of our sins. But let me ask this question. How can God do that? Specifically, How can God forgive each and every one of our sins and still be just? 
How can he still be holy? How can he still be a just judge? Friends, let me ask you a very simple question. Can a just and righteous judge simply let the guilty person walk? Yes or no? Yes or no? No, right? A just judge can't let a guilty person walk. Friends, someone has to pay for our sins. Someone has to pay the penalty that is just. And so Paul turns then in explanation to say that. He, he says the means by which the forgiveness of sins is made available is described in verse 14. I'll start in verse 13 just for context here. <clears throat> When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. How could he do that? How did he do that? Verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Friends, here our sins are likened by Paul to a document recording monetary debt. In other words, if you had, if you owed someone money, it was written down, right? And so Paul likens our sins to this monetary debt. It's, it's, it's essentially an IOU that we have amassed a list, an IOU, a spiritual debt to God. And what is the result of that list? Well, he, he says that it, it stands against us, and it does what? It condemns us, right? It, it stands against us, and it condemns us. But with this list of, of sin debt, this, this sin debt that we have amassed that we can never pay off on our own, God is said to have canceled it out. The word in Greek literally means to erase. It is as, as if the, the list of our sins has been Wiped clean. It is canceled. It is erased. It's no longer on our spiritual account. But where does it go? On whose account must it be placed? Well, Paul tells us, does he not? He says he took the the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he took it away and he nailed it to the what? He nailed it to the cross. Friends, the just and fearsome penalty... For all of our sins, meticulously recorded in the courtroom of heaven, is not only washed into eternal oblivion by the blood of Christ, but it has been eternally fashioned, fastened to the cross of Christ. And friends, this is wonderful news. This is a description of the new purity that is available to anyone who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Dr. Roy Gustafson, he tells a story of a man, uh, a a very wealthy man in England, and he owned a Rolls Royce. And so he decided to take that Rolls Royce, well, across the pond and to go to Europe and to to go on vacation. And he was driving around Europe and something, well, something happened. His engine uh, started to, to, to break down. And so he cabled the Rolls Royce company. This was many years ago. He cabled them and he essentially said, I'm having trouble with my car. Uh, this Rolls Royce that I bought from you. What do you suggest I do? As the story goes, the Rolls Royce said, we'll send a mechanic right away. And they did. They flew the mechanic over. The mechanic came and repaired the car, and the man enjoyed the rest of his holiday. Of course, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, how much is this going to cost? Right? They sent a mechanic across the pond. How much is this going to, to cost? And so he wrote a letter once he got back to England asking, how much is this going to cost me? And in response, he got a letter that that reads this way. 
Dear Sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. Friends, essentially, if I might illustrate it this way, Paul is saying to us in Christ, in Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15, that when we are in Christ, it's, it's as if God is saying, there is no record anywhere in my files, on, on your account, that anything has, has ever went wrong. This debt, our legal indebtedness, has been wiped away and nailed to the cross of Christ. And so this is the provision that God makes available, the forgiveness of all of our sins. But as we move from the new purity provided to the new purity procured, well, we need to ask yet another question. How can this be true personally for us? How can this be true for me? And for you, it's, it's one thing to know that God offers the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, and yet it is an, it is a, an entirely other thing to procure it for oneself. I think the, the, key, the key phrase here is what we see in Colossians 2, that God made you alive, God made you alive with Christ. He said, God made you alive with Christ. It's only when we are united by faith in Christ, to Christ, that this new purity is applied to our account. So what I want us to do as we shift gears to Romans chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, let's turn there. In fact, you can go to Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse 22. And then we'll be working into Romans chapter 4. We have to ask the question, how can we procure this new purity that has been provided for us? How can we procure it? Well, what we see is that in Romans chapter 3, Paul is, is shifting gears. He's made the argument thus far that every single person lacks the righteousness necessary to be right with God. And, and then, and then in, in verse 21, there's sort of a shifting of gears. He moves from this lack of righteousness to the provision of that righteousness. In other words, how can we, though we are guilty of sin uh, and destined to hell, how can we be made right? Well, he tells us, starting in verse 22, he says, This righteousness, this righteousness is given through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believes. And so the question then becomes, what does this faith look like? He's, he introduces the idea that we can have this right standing before God, this justification, this declaration of righteousness by faith, but what does faith look like? In fact, in fact, in chapter 3, he emphasizes faith so much. I think he, he mentions it six times if you were to read that. And so very clearly, Paul let, lets it be known that this gift, this righteousness, it's available through faith. But the question then becomes, what does that look like? What does saving faith look like? How does it work? I think he answers that question for us in chapter 4. Because as he moves into chapter 4, he gives us an example of saving faith in the person of Father Abraham. So let's begin in verse 1. What then shall we say? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So if I could summarize these verses for us in verse 1. What does Abraham's example reveal to us, Paul asks in verse 1. 
verse 2, he says, well, if Abraham could have earned salvation, if he could have merited it, then he would have something to boast about. But that's not, in fact, what happened. Verse 3, what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible say about how we are made right with God? Answer, it's found in Genesis 15. God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham simply believed that promise. And then the righteousness of God was credited to his account. And so Abraham's example is the example, is an example of saving faith, of grace through faith. And so he gives us an example of a living person. But the verses I'd like to focus on are verses 4 and 5. And I think they're a wonderful example of how one procures this new purity, the forgiveness of sins that has been made available through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he uses another example, not an example of a person, but, believe it or not, the example of receiving a paycheck. We all love paydays, do we not? We love paydays. We get what we have worked for. We get what we have earned. And he uses this to teach about how one procures our new purity. Notice verse 4. He says, Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So, Follow Paul's logic here, right? He says, when you go to work, and when that paycheck is in the mail, or when they they hand it to you, or when it shows up in your bank account, right? When you receive your wages, what is the nature of that paycheck? Is it something that you have earned, or is it a gift? Which one? Option number one, right? You worked for it, therefore you received it. In other words, it's, it's not credited to your account as if your employer was simply being nice to you, right? It's not a gift. That's what makes a wage a wage. You earn it, right? They are earned. Friends, let me just pause here and say that this is how many people view uh, being made right with God. This is how many people view going to heaven. This is how they think it's going to work, like a wage. Because in a sense, they are, well, they're a good person. They're better than most. They're better than at least their neighbor, right? Maybe they're not as bad as the worst human being. Uh, because they try hard to do what is right. They, they, they try to do religious activities, possibly. They go to church every now and then. Or they were baptized as an infant or even as an adult. They, they give money to church and to charity. Or maybe they serve on a board. And so they think on the day of their death, when they stand before God, that God will give them what? A gift? No. That God will give them a wage, an obligation, entrance into heaven. That is something that they have earned. Friends, let me say what Paul is about to say. That is not how it works. That is not how one goes to heaven. Notice verse 5. However, Paul is going to make a contrast here. However, to the one who does not work, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And so now we see in stark contrast to verse 4, salvation, this new purity, is not granted to the one who works. Rather, quite the contrary. It is granted to the one who does not work, who does not try to earn it. I want to see 
I want us to see two things about this. Two things about how one procures this new purity. Number one, there is a, re- a rejection of personal merit. There is a rejection of personal merit. Did you see that? Paul says, to the one who does not work. Friends, let me be clear, as clear as I can. If we trust in anything we have done, or in anything that we could ever do to get us to heaven, to be right with God, then we will miss out on God's salvation. One commentator puts it beautifully when he says this. He says, until one is willing to let, to let fall from his or her hands every coin of personally achieved righteousness, he or she cannot, cannot extend an empty hand of true faith. In other words, if you're clinging to anything that you could do or ever do, you can't open your hand to receive the gift, which is God's salvation. Not only is, is there a, a rejection of personal merit, but number, number two, there is a reception of gifted righteousness. Did you see that? He says, but, but, but the one who trusts God, the one who trusts in God, who declares right, who justifies the ungodly, that faith, that kind of faith is credited as righteousness. Once we let go of any attempt to be right with God on our own, then and only then can we reach out our hands in trust and in faith to receive the gift of Jesus' righteousness, which God credits to our account. But friends, like any gift, it must be received. This righteousness, this purity, it is only applied to our account when it is personally received, when it is personally accepted, when it is personally trusted in. Friends, it's not enough to understand the facts of the gospel. It's not enough even to to mentally um, assent to it, to say, yes, that is true. You must personally place your faith in that gospel, in that person of Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, many years ago, there was a famous tightrope artist, and his name was Blondine, is what I will pronounce it. His name was Blondine, and uh, as the story goes, he strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, that is a stunning, stunning thing. And so he, he, he strung this tightrope across it, and he would go back and forth and do tricks, and he would walk on it. And one day, he, he, he had a wheelbarrow, and he said, to the crowd, how many of you think that I can take this wheelbarrow all the way across and back? And they all cheered, and they all applauded, and they thought that he could, and so he did it. He took the wheelbarrow all the way across and back to the other side, and the crowd was mesmerized. Oh, there it is. There's a picture of it. And they were mesmerized, right, that they, he could do it. And so then he looked at the crowd, and he said, okay, um, who believes I can, I can carry a person in the wheelbarrow on the other side? And the crowd applauded, yes, you can do it, you can do it. And then he said, "Uh, and now I'd like to take a volunteer. And he looked across the crowd, and as you can imagine, there was no single soul that day who wanted to place their very life in the hands of this tightrope walker who had demonstrated that he could do it. They believed uh, in their mind that, that it, it could happen, that even he could do it. But friends, is that faith, is that putting their faith in Mr. Blondine? Is that true faith? Not until they get into the wheelbarrow are they really placing their faith in this man's abilities. Friends, it's the same with Christ. 
The only way that we can cross over into heaven is by getting in the wheelbarrow, by trusting that Jesus can do what we could never do personally. And so, friends, I want to close by asking, have you, do, have you made that decision? Have you, have you gotten into the wheelbarrow, so to speak? Because if not, well, then Christ can't usher you across time and eternity into heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that your spirit would be at work. And Lord, if there's a person here that thinks that, uh, that they can earn salvation, that they can be made right with you by some act of righteousness, by some good deed, by some meritorious work, by some religious activity, Lord, I pray that you would strip them of every confidence that that might give them and that they would come to recognize that, that you declare righteous not the one who works, but the one who doesn't work, the one who trusts in the work of another, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would even now be well-pleased to save someone, that even now in this moment that there would be someone who would get in the wheelbarrow and that they would trust in Jesus personally as their Savior and begin to follow him as Lord. Father, for those of us who have, may we know that we have made the best decision ever and that Jesus is sufficient and that his righteousness is sufficient and that his faithfulness is altogether sufficient to forgive us of all of our sins. And for this, we are eternally grateful. Father, prepare us, I pray now, as, as we leave to go out into this world and to preach that very gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.